there's handouts in the foyer um, that I think is a really neat parallel comparison between Genesis 1 through 3 and Revelation 20 through 22. We're going to spend the bulk of our time in Revelation 21 and 22 tonight. Um, so have your Bibles we'll probably go through almost uh, verse by verse because I, uh, of all the places in the scripture, this is the most definitive as to what we would call the eternal state, what sometimes we mistakenly call heaven, and we'll, we'll kind of clear that lingo up a bit, but this is what life will be like for the redeemed forever, and focus on that as opposed to the various stages of uh, uh, the places where the redeemed are until that time. So again, that handout will be hopefully uh, helpful to you, and we'll probably start in about, well, let's, let's go ahead and get started. How are you all doing? I, I hadn't, hadn't been here in a couple of weeks. I'm trying to get back into the groove. Um, let me pray for us and, and we can get going. Lord, thank you so much uh, for each one here and for those that are still coming. And thank you for the opportunity we've had this summer over these now uh, four times together uh, to think about the word of God through the prophetic lens. I pray uh, above all things that we might be uh, ever more trustful of you, uh, that we might see you as one who truly holds uh, the future and has uh, and have been so kind to uh, reveal to us uh, what the future un- will unfold and, and carries for us. So uh, we ask that your spirit now be our instructor this evening and uh, guide us into truth. Uh, we may, uh, may we be a men and women of the book who uh, know the whole word of God and, and especially as we see tonight, Lord, see the beautiful um, simplicity at times and complexity of the Word of God and how beautifully uh, it fits together now that we'll see the final stages unfold um, in these two chapters. I thank you for each one here, Lord, and the things that are going on in our lives. I pray that you might allow us to um, set those things aside right now and focus, concentrate uh, on the things of the Word of God. I pray this now in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. We have some questions left over that that Blake wanted me to handle from last time. There's three of them. Uh, Thank you, Blake. it, they're, actually, they're not too hard. So I, I gave him a hard time, but they're not too hard. Uh, the first question, uh, when do we get the mansion God has prepared for us uh, the new, uh, in the millennial kingdom or the new heaven and new earth? And I will use these questions to sort of get us back in the mood of what's going on, and then I'll review a bit. Um, the question actually is flawed a bit because actually I don't think the answer is either one of those. But uh, this is a reference, obviously, to uh, Jesus' words in John 14, I go away and prepare a place for you. And the King James translated that mansion. Other places translated that mansion. It's, just, it's the Greek word topos. We'll get our word topography from the first, the first half of that word topography uh, comes from this word. It's just, it just means a place. It does not refer to a, a large home. So maybe a real estate broker asked this question or something. I'm, I'm not really sure. But there is a place being prepared for us. And I think we're going to see and, I, and the problem, we're, we're going to talk a bit here in a minute about the book of Revelation, certainly the latter part of it is, is it's like being a detective. If the case for the deity of Jesus Christ was put before us, frankly, that's an easy case to prove from the Word of God. It, it is an overwhelmingly clear case that Jesus of Nazareth is presented as the Messiah in, in the Bible, Okay. It's not as easy to put together what's going to happen in the future, especially a Revelation 21 and 22, which is an apocalyptic vision, uh, which is full of symbolism, many of which are converted, some are not, uh, and so we can't be as certain. Um, so 
in, in the first case, the deity of Christ, we might be able to call, you know, 5,000 witnesses to the, uh, to the courtroom and each give their perspective. In the case of, of the eternal state in Revelation 21 and 22 and the things that are going on in heaven as opposed to earth right now, we might be able to call 25 to 50 witnesses. It's just not, the, the information is not as overwhelming as the, as the person of Christ. I, I, I tend to think of it like an archer's target. You've got the bullseye, and that would be the things of, of the Bible, things of Jesus, things of God that are very clearly revealed over and over. Every different author will say the same thing a, a different way, but they'll get to the same point. But you get way out here on those, those concentric circles that are way out on, on the far reaches of the target. Those are the things like of eschatology, the things aren't, that are not as clear. But that doesn't mean there's not information for it, okay? And what I think is going on here is in, in, in relationship to this mansion question. I think Jesus is, after he, is, after he ascended in, in the book of Acts, in fulfillment of the promise he makes in John 14, he is preparing a place for us, a place for the redeemed, in particular a place for the bride of Christ. There's a beautiful parallel that we talked about when I was here with you last to the Jewish wedding festival, that, that, the, that the groom would come after his bride by first going and paying a payment for her uh, to the parents, to the father, uh, and then he would go away and prepare a place for he and his bride in which they were going to be married, we would say, and live. And that was the home of his father. So he would go back to his father's house and prepare a place for he and his bride perfect fulfillment of what we're going to see in Revelation 21 and 22, where the new Jerusalem will be called the bride of Christ, and perfect fulfillment of what we're seeing throughout the Bible with the Jewish wedding festival. So I think Jesus is currently preparing a place for us. It might be a mansion. I'm not sure. I think it's going to be a part, a compartment, an apartment, if you will, of the new Jerusalem that we're going to be descent, going to see descending in Revelation 21 um, uh, and 22 tonight. So but I'm not positive. That's, again, one of those witnesses that I would go, or, or under cross-examination, you know, he may spill the beans another way, because it's not that clear. It's not that much information that we have. But it, it, I think it, it makes a beautiful picture of that. So we would get uh, the opportunity to live in that mansion at the rapture, which is what I talked with you guys about a couple, three weeks ago. Uh, as living believers, if we were so fortunate, if you will, we would be immediately in the presence of the Lord and immediately in an immortal body because the, ra- the rapture was also a resurrection uh, and would live in that abode during the seven-year tribulation period, which I think the church is not a part of while that's going on on earth. And then that, what we would call heaven, that component called now the new Jerusalem is what come and descends on the planet as we'll see in Revelation 21. So the answer is really at the rapture where we would get uh, the place where we would live, um, and also the home of, of other redeemed that I think we'll see. This question also has a, a premise that I don't think is correct, but it, it, it's a good question. It's, it's out of Romans eleven twenty five through 27. It talks about, thus all Israel will be saved. And people kind of get, go a little crazy with that word all sometimes and what is Israel. But the question, as stated, uh, if all Jews will be saved, and that's the point uh, that we, we need to be careful about, uh, should we spend time and emotions investing with them now? At the end of the tribulation, when Israel is saved, will this be true for the Jews who have died previously? Let me kind of convert this sentence for you. Uh, Paul will say at the end of, of Romans 11, after that diatribe in chapters 9, 10, and 11, where he talks about those that have been broken off 
because of their unbelief. He uses the image of the, the branch and the branches. Those that have been broken off or the Jews, but he talks about their, how much more natural and how much more effective will they be when they're grafted back in because they're the natural branches into this seed, the root of Abraham, if you will, and the blessing that comes from Abraham. And so their unbelief is what characterizes them as a nation now. There are remnants of believers in Israel. There are remnants of Jewish believers all over the world. There's probably more Jewish Christians in New York City than there are in Israel today. So they're all over the, all over the world, and, but they're few. And I think that's the image that Paul is referring to here. We, we're kind of a, a lawyer kind of a, of a society, and we hear the word all, and we sort of go to the extreme every time, and we think that must mean every human being every, that's ever lived, or every Jew in this case. And I don't think that's what Paul is saying. He's saying that compared to the few that are being described in Romans 9, 10, and 11, there will be many, thus the term all, that will be saved at the end of the tribulation and really throughout the tribulation period. We, we talk about the tribulation uh, when uh, Jason presented that. He used the phrase from Jeremiah, it's, it's the time of Jacob's trouble. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then the 12, 12 sons came from Jacob. It is a time for Israel's trouble, but it's also a time of great blessing for Israel in which um, the, the 70th week of Daniel is poured out upon them in, in forms of judgment, yes, that are ever-increasing, but also in amazing worldwide evangelism. That's why very early in the book of Revelation, chapter 7 in particular, just when the tribulation is beginning, these 144,000 Jewish evangelists are sealed, protected from death, so they can go around spreading the gospel, fulfilling what Jesus said in Matthew 24, that the gospel will be preached to the end of the world. And a multitude of people are coming to Christ. And as, as you'll recall in those chapters, and, and specifically in chapters 4 through 19 of Revelation, which kind of encompasses the tribulation period, it follows chronologically a pattern. But every, every once in a while, it'll, it'll have this earthly scene, and then it'll pop up to heaven. And then it'll come back, and then chronology will continue, and then it'll pop up to heaven. There's five or six heaven scenes in the book of Revelation. And, and almost every one of those describe the multitudes that have come out of the Great Tribulation, that have died in, during the Tribulation as Christians, as people who have come to faith in Messiah, and yet they were um, martyred, most likely, for their death. And it shows them, and we'll, we'll end our time tonight with talking about what they're doing in heaven to give us a foretaste of what heaven will be like. Like. Uh, and so we see this large number of Jews throughout the tribulation period coming to Christ. So, yes, I, think, I don't think it's true that, that every Jew will be saved automatically so that we don't have to evangelize. That would also be true with any, any concept of the doctrine of election. If, if God has chosen some people to be saved, why then witness? Well, first of all, we're commanded to. And secondly, amazingly, 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says that we're actually a part of the process, that God has, yes, has chosen, but through faith in the truth, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, through prayer, through the witness of the saints. And so the, the beauty of it is, is that we get a part in it. And it actually, I think, enhances God's sovereignty. He's so smart, he's so powerful, he's so able that he can incorporate our means, our efforts, our participation to bring about his plan as well. And so I think those kind of thoughts will, will help us here. It's not correct, and some have taken this, the all Israel to mean every Jew that's ever been born 
from, from Jacob uh, will, will be in heaven. That's simply not true. That's not what that is going on in the book of Revelation or in the book of Romans. That's clearly not what we'll see uh, in Revelation for those that will be destined uh, or that will spend their time in the lake of fire. Uh, there is a delineation, and that delineation is based on faith in God's promise, so depending where you are in history uh, and how you respond to that. But we saw early in Genesis that Abram believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Faith in God and what he has promised results in a right standing before him, and that's been the transaction throughout the Scripture. So it'd be improper to take that too far and say every Jew that's ever lived will be in heaven. Um, faith is the, is the demarcation. Uh, the last one is out of, we'll see it tonight, in, in, or we saw it last week in Revelation 20, um, but most people think of Gog and Magog from Ezekiel 38. And 39. And so the question reads Are Gog and Magog of Rev 28 the same Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39? Are the events of Ezekiel 38 and 39 at the end of the millennial kingdom? And this might help us a bit kind of see, understand what John is seeing too. V- visions are, you know, some gnarly events. And we see prophets throughout the Word of God see visions, see apocalyptic things in the future. And often it's what's called telescoping. They'll see the tops of the mountains, if you will, and not the valleys in between. So they'll often see a bunch of things in one site and really aren't all that concerned with the time, the valley, that might be in between. So I think the Gog and Magog of Ezekiel 38 and 39 is the same region. It could be symbolic language for an enemy. We'll see God do that in the Word of God elsewhere with the term like Babylon, an actual place in Genesis in which it might be referring to, as Jason thinks, uh, Jerusalem uh, in, in the book of Revelation, a term for, I, I might say, uh, um, you, you, uh, you, you guys ought to live in those apartment complexes over there. And, and you might say, oh man, that place is Vegas. You don't want to go there. That's like, it's like going to Sodom. It's like going to Gomorrah. It's like going to Babylon. The, the scripture does the same thing. It will use a term based on its characteristic as the actual place. I think the, Megan, the, Meg, the Gog and Magog of Ezekiel 38 and 39 or, or an area from the north, most likely either northern Turkey, Russia, that will come in to take a spoil in the land uh, at the latter part of the tribulation period during that seven-year period. Uh, you have a, some time references in Ezekiel 38 and 39 as to the, the, curp, the, the, the battle results will lay in the field for seven months. You need some time to go by. But what about the Gog and Magog in in, uh, Revelation 20? In the same spirit of a pagan enemy coming into the beautiful land, coming in to uh, cause rebellion in Israel, that will still occur during the millennial kingdom time as prophesied in Revelation 20. You know, of all the things of the millennium, that is the most amazing to me, that that Christ returns. Let's assume that we're right, that the rapture is before the tribulation. The tribulation period is primarily focused on the restoration of Israel. At the end of that seven-year period, the Lord returns and slays his enemies in that very powerful 19th chapter of Revelation. And then the millennial kingdom is established. God in the person of Christ on earth ruling from Jerusalem, the whole world, okay? I mean, a benevolent dictator telling us what to do, one who loves us, one who cares for us, one who's redeemed for us, that's not a bad deal. And at the end of that thousand-year reign, there's a rebellion. When Satan, who had been put in the huskal at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, he's released, 
He deceives the nations again, and they rebel against God. That's what's in us. Because the people living in the millennial kingdom are no different than you and me. They are the literal human descendants of those that survived the tribulation, Christians. So they're the descendants of Christians who've been born in the millennial kingdom and will end up being, some will be deceived uh, by Satan at the end and will rebel against God. That is what is the utter sinfulness of sin, as Paul would say in the book of, book of Romans. That's what's wrong with us. That's why we need a, a, a new birth, a complete do-over, not just get better. And, and no better place in my mind that reveals the, that other sinfulness of sin than a rebellion at the end of the millennial kingdom. So I think maybe Ezekiel may have seen both. He may have seen the battle in, in the tribulation period and again seen this battle, uh, which Gog and Magog will be involved in both in Revelation 20. But I think Ezekiel 38 and 39 is at the end of the tribulation period. I think Revelation 28 is at the end of the millennial kingdom. Okay? Now, we've used our, our terms there. Let's, here's where we've been, but I'm going to use the chart to kind of remind us to, as we focus tonight on new heaven and new earth. We'll go over this quickly, but again, as to our Bible study method skills, I really want to encourage you that, uh, again, 28% of the Word of God is prophetic literature of all different kinds. And sort of the you know, the, the Davy Crockett of all uh, apocalyptic literature is, of all prophetic literature is apocalyptic literature, visions, things like Isaiah 7, things like the whole book of Revelation is a vision that John saw. And it has symbols in it. Interestingly, as, as I was preparing for tonight, 10 of the symbols in the book of Revelation are converted are explained within Revelation itself. It will say what that symbol represents. Ten are not. And so sometimes we'll make the mistake and say, I can't figure any of this out. It never tells me anything. Well, it tells us half. Half of them we can get. And in the other half, we can sort of, through illusion and, and triangulation with Daniel, with Ezekiel, with other parts of the Bible, the Bible is a unified story, no better than in the prophetic world, you can start to see a picture. It's dim. It's not as clear as Jesus is the Christ. That's undeniable. But you can begin to put together some pictures of what the future might be. Also, interestingly, as much as I love prophecy and as much of the Word of God is prophecy, the Bible primarily is a book about us now, okay? It's not overly emphasizing what heaven is going to be like. In fact, there's not that much information really about it. If you really want to ask the question, what is the eternal state really like? You really only have Revelation 21 and 22. Everything else describes what the state of the redeemed is like until that time. So it's clearly not its main focus. The main purpose of sovereignty is to remind us, or of prophecy rather, is to remind us of the sovereign hand of God, the one who is in control of all and who can bring about his will. But he wants us to focus on the here and now in light of the future certainty, but he's more interested in how we live now and focuses our efforts toward that. So as we think about those, don't be afraid of apocalyptic literature. Don't be afraid of prophecy. It does take more work. I can promise you that. 
of all the conferences I used to go to for Bible stuff and interpretation stuff, I only go to one now, and it's a prophecy conference every December because it deals with mainly the art and science of interpretation, of how to be precise, how to be careful, how to convert that symbol that Daniel says and how to line that same symbol up with what John says in Revelation to begin to get a picture. And it's not easy. It's like putting a jigsaw puzzle together. It's like solving a very difficult case, and you've got not all complete information, and, 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 and it can be frustrating, but I want to encourage you that, that, that there's some great moments where you can see some things in the Scripture and how God thinks and how well He's written and how uh, wonderfully He's communicated that they're really those little aha moments. Those, uh, I've had four or five, I never saw that before, kind of moments just preparing for these two um, presentations on the rapture are now here tonight. Um, I gave you this the first night, and if you don't have it, we'll get you another copy. But uh, again, you can't teach prophecy without a chart, just to make sure we, we see sort of where we are and, and where we've been. The Bible unfolds through a, a series of eras, E-R-A's, or some will call dispensations. I like to use the image of a camera that God has chosen to focus his camera over here for a while to teach us about himself and how people interact with him through that people group, and then he moves the camera over here. So he starts with Gentiles from Abraham, from Adam to Abraham. Then he moves to the Jews and focuses upon them. The Mosaic law comes from them from Exodus 20 through the end of the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, 613 laws called the law uh, comes from that. And, and that, of course, then Jesus becomes the end of the law, if you will. And this mystery called the church. Now he's focusing on this odd amalgamation of Gentile and Jew together in one body called the church. The mystery described in Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 3. So the church then becomes the focus of God's attention. That's what, of course, we're a part of. We believe, I believe, that that age, that time, that, that shot in the movie, if you will, will end with the rapture of the church. And then the final return back to Israel, they were over here, right? And the final seven years, that amazing prophecy that we saw from Daniel 9, 24 through 27, that a total of 70 seven-year windows or uh, weeks, if you will, have been set aside for Israel, and they've used all but one up. There's one seven-year period left. That's why the tribulation period has to be about Israel, and it can't be, in my opinion, about the church. It's the return back to Israel and refocusing upon them, the time of Jacob's trouble. And as you go through uh, the the tribulation passages, primarily in the book of, of Revelation, where is it unfolding? Jerusalem, the land. It talks about geographical places in Israel that are still there today. It's the focus upon those final seven years. It becomes the seedbed of Antichrist where he uh, is going to hang out a bunch. It becomes the, the major focal point of the two witnesses uh, as, as Israel then in the seven-year tribulation period is that next uh, scene in the movie. And then that ends and then with Christ's return, and this glorious day on earth appears in which uh, the long-awaited Messiah returns as promised back to the planet and sets up shop, not in Washington, D.C., but in Jerusalem as king over his kingdom, over his realm of the whole world, focused in and out, in and around Jerusalem. That thousand-year period, only so delineated by John in the, in the book of Revelation, but the, the millennial kingdom is prophesied throughout the word of God, primarily 
in the Old Testament, by the way. So we need to be men and women of the whole book and see the beauty of all the prophets and the little pieces that they contribute and how it really can be put together so nicely. And that's that thousand-year period then characterizes uh, the planet. At the end of that is that rebellion. And then as we're going to see now, we're going to move into this phase called the new heaven and new earth, also known as the eternal state. For the movie ends with the new heaven and new earth. There's, there's no more coming. In fact, at the end of Revelation, John says, don't write anything else. This is it. Uh, and what we see is how that will come about and what characterizes that era, that phase uh, in God's prophetic lineage. A little bit more clearly, we had this same uh, chart here, but again, just the, you know, my, my mind is sort of like, you know, the mo- it does the movie thing or the domino thing, that this domino pushes that domino over, that that pushes that domino over. And we see God slowly but surely reveal himself through his interactions with these various groups. First, uh, in the realm of the church, in the seven-year period, which is divided into two, three-and-a-half-year periods. The midpoint is absolutely crucial. Daniel 9 predicts that at the midpoint, uh, Antichrist will reveal himself and will break the pact that he has made with Israel. And then what's called the Great Tribulation begins, the final three-and-a-half-year period. So severe, Jesus says, that unless it's cut off, unless the Lord returns, everyone would get killed. It's such horrific war and such a a horrific combination of things that are happening upon the planet, eventually everyone would just die. They wouldn't make it. So the return of the Lord is not only in vengeance, but it's also a form of grace and mercy to end uh, the terrible persecution uh, that was going on. And the return of Christ then that establishes his reign on earth, depicted as a thousand years, I think four or five times in Rev 24 through 6, but elsewhere, Isaiah 2, throughout the Old Testament, and then this t- thing called eternity or the new heavens and new earth, okay? So that, that's sort of the background. That's where we've been. Of course, the famous question that everyone's always asked, including in Field of Dreams, is what's heaven like? As, as the guy that comes back and says, is this heaven? And of course, Costner's character says, no, it's Iowa, man. It's not heaven. But there was something about the experience going on in this movie that captures well what people have been fascinated by. You know, is there a heaven and what's it like? Uh, and, and that we can't figure it out is so revealing of our condition. Uh, imagine life without air, okay? Imagine life without sin. As neat as that, everyone would say, oh, I'd love to not sin. Just in saying that, you probably sinned, okay? There's, there's just, it's impossible to imagine this life without something wrong. That's what characterizes this life. That's what's been overcome throughout the book of Revelation using the term, he who overcomes, he who overcomes. He who can uh, defeat sin's foe. Uh, and and, and it, it, still, it still rages. It still ravages us at times. But we all look forward to this time of the very... Uh, escape from the presence of sin and things being wrong, and, and, and thus people have, have looked for heaven and, and, and want to know it, where it is, and, and maybe it is in Iowa, I'm not certain, but I don't think Revelation 21 and 22 is talking about that. It's going to talk about a different thing called the New Jerusalem. One of the questions that comes up, as we just came out from last week with Blake talking about the Millennial Kingdom, is, is Revelation 21 and 22 describing the Millennial Kingdom? And it's not unusual to find commentators and really good theologians that think that it is. I'm neither a commentator and probably not a very good theologian, but I don't think it is. 
I think the millennial kingdom is a distinct time in God's economy from that of the new heaven and new earth described in Revelation 21 and 22. Let me make my case why I think that is. But this question is a fair question and people pose it all the time. And they mainly get it, by the way, from Isaiah 65, which you also have to read Isaiah 66, because Isaiah 65 uses the phrase, I, in seeing, and he, I saw a new heaven and new earth. And everybody, well, you see, see that there, you see that in Revelation 21. It must be the same thing, because Isaiah is clearly talking about the millennial kingdom. But the problem in Isaiah 65 is he talks about children dying. He talks about accursed kids, that, that the age, age span will be expanded back to what we see in Genesis. And, and a child who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. So imagine children being 100 years old. Now, you might be, as a parent, 565 years old. The same kind of relationship would exist in our relevant ages or relative ages. But the one who does not make it to 100 is just a terrible thing. And death is a part of the millennial kingdom. Death is not a part of the eternal state. And I think what Isaiah is doing, he's doing that telescoping thing. I think he's seeing some grand time in the future but he's not delineating between the kingdom, the millennial kingdom, and the eternal state. It's almost like the millennial kingdom is a coming attraction, a preview. Like in a movie, it gives us a foretaste, just a little lick of what the eternal state would be like. I mean, after all, God on planet earth living among us, caring for us, ruling with peace and a rod of iron, but there's still rebellion. There's still sin there's still death. It's, it's curtailed far more than now, but the disease is still here. The millennial kingdom is distinct from the eternal state or the new heaven and new earth uh, on a number of fronts. And one of the ways I want to argue is just from the, uh, from the uh, outline of the book of Revelation. Uh, John gives you a quick overview of how Revelation is to unfold. He tells us in, in, in chapter 1, verse 19, he says, I want you to write the things that you have seen and that becomes what we call chapter 1. I want you to write the things that are. That becomes chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, the letter to the seven churches, the churches that existed when John was writing, and he, he wrote, them about, he wrote about the, their specific relationships with the Lord. And then what takes up the bulk of the book of Revelation is this last category, the things which shall take place after these things. And I think that's the remaining part of the book of, of Revelation from chapters 4 through 22. In f- the tribulation is described in 4 through 19. The, at the, in chapter 20, we see a power-packed chapter of the millennial kingdom, the rebellion, and the great white throne judgment for the unbelievers. And then in chapter 21 and 22, the new heavens and new earth. And so what we're seeing is a story unfold that follows generally a chronological sequence. Okay? Typically, chapter 9 is, is, occurs chronologically after 8, which occurs after chapter 7. Now, every once in a while, it'll throw you off because it'll give you those heaven scenes, which are going on at the same time of, of what the previous chapter was describing on earth. And it'll say, here's the scene on earth, here's the scene on, in heaven during that same time. But it's easy to see and, and, and uh, easy to follow, I believe, a chronological perspective, a, a chronological order to the book of Revelation. And so it follows that if the millennial kingdom is after the return of Christ, and then we have a very powerful 
uh, new kind of revelation in Revelation 21.1, I think the new heaven and new earth follows the millennial kingdom chronologically, meaning they're not the same thing in my opinion. So that's where I'm going to be coming from. It's, the chronological order is kept intact. So we need to identify the new characters, the next chapter in the book, and recognize that a new thing has occurred. And I argue that Revelation 21 and 22 will follow uh, the preceding events. But moreover, the changes, the comparison between the description of the earth and the relationship with God and what people are like described in Revelation 21 and 22 is dramatically different from even the millennial kingdom. And let me show you just a few examples. And, and uh, this, this chart maybe may help you. At the end of, of Revelation 20, finally, Satan is, is banished. This is the only reference to pre-21 and 22, but it still, it still affects 21 and 22 because Satan is no longer loose at any time ever again after Revelation 20, verse 10. He's thrown into Gehenna or the lake of fire. Uh, the, the first heaven and the first earth we're going to see pass away. That's the heaven and earth that we're in now, the heaven and earth that will be around in the tribulation period, and the same stuff of the planet that will be around in the millennial kingdom. No longer any sea. Now, this is a vision, but some things in a vision are symbolic, and some things are actually real, and that's where the rubber meets the road, trying to figure out what's real and what's just a symbol. But I take it that he's referring to the actual seas, the Pacific, the Atlantic, the Indian Oceans, or no more. And he'll give a reason why that's true. That's certainly not true in the millennial kingdom. You'll see in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, references to bodies of waters. There's no longer any death, crying, or pain described in the new heaven and new earth. We know there's death in the millennial kingdom from Isaiah 65 and elsewhere. All things are made new, he says, in chapter 21. Uh, there are no longer any night. We have references to evening and night uh, still in the millennial kingdom, but not so during the new heavens and new earth. There's no longer any unclean or abomination or lying. At the end of the millennial kingdom, there was a rebellion led by Satan in which people follow after him again and participate in abominable things, lying and rebelling against God. They're not the same things. The millennial kingdom, I believe, is a foretaste of, of the new heaven and new earth, but they're not the same thing. And finally, there's no longer any curse. The curse that first began in Genesis chapter 3 will continue all the way until Revelation chapter 21. It will, it will no longer be a part of life once Revelation 21 starts. So a little bit of, of effort there to delineate, to distinguish between the, the kingdom and the new heaven and new earth. But let's go in our Bibles now because we're going we're gonna to slug it out pretty good here, especially in chapter 21. I want to give you sort of an overview of what's going on as we take a look at these two chapters. It's an easy division. Um, the, the eternal state, what's heaven going to be like, these are all synonyms, is described in chapter 21, uh, 1 through 22, 5. It's a weird little break in 22 because he's going to do an epilogue. Um, it's kind of last words. If this is all true, do this. Uh, and it's going to be interesting because he's going to be describing primarily a vision that is of the future. But the, the vision is so compelling to him, he'll also speak every once in a while to his contemporary audience and say, man, if this is the case, you better get right with God right now, 
okay? He'll use prophecy, which is a proper use of prophecy, to bring about present contemporary response to that certain future. So the book is divided with the eternal state comprising the bulk of the two chapters. And then what, like 15 verses at the end talking about uh, his final words. So the, the eternal state is really the focus as he talks about this new creation, this new thing called the heaven and earth in, in, in 21.1. He sees it descend, and we'll go in great detail of that, in 21.2. He'll talk about the new Jerusalem in verses 3 through 7. The first look, just give us some uh, of the details of it. Uh, he will then go to one of his uh, little altar calls. He'll, he'll, don't be the guy that's not a part of this. Outside of this are the liars and the unbelie- liars and the unfaithful and the cheaters and, and, and all those kind of people. It's a, it's a negative um, um, way to get people to do the right thing. He's saying, don't be a part of this group that is excluded. Uh, he then goes back and in a very rich and lavish description, describes this cube shape or perhaps a pyramid shaped um, thing that he sees descending huge, enormous thing that he sees descending, and he kind of breaks it down. You know, this wall, what kind of stones, what's the streets made of, what, you know, is there a temple, all that, is there light, all these sorts of things. And then he'll talk about the special delights of it, the, the unusual fellowship that exists between mankind, the redeemed, and human beings in uh, the New Jerusalem, which we can also call heaven which we can also call the eternal state. So I'm going to use those uh, synonymously, okay? Um, and then again, the, the epilogue will follow after that. So does that, that sort of make sense? So let, let's just, that's, we're going to break it down just a little, but the flow is, is pretty straightforward as this book unfolds. He's going to talk about this thing that he's going to see descending. He's going to kind of be overwhelmed by it, and then he's going to come back and talk about it in detail. That's, in essence... Chapter 21, as it flows over uh, into chapter 22. So let's just, let's just start in 21.1. Again, now, it's very important. Of course, you know, we, we do Bible study, and, and, and it's, sometimes we can be so precise and look at what we're looking at today that we forgot what was before. And the author, when he wrote this, he wrote it to be read all at one time, like we would two or three chapters in a Grisham novel. You need to get some flow going, and you're expected to remember what's been going on when you come back to the book the next night and pick it up in the next chapter. So in chapter 20, the millennial kingdom has unfolded. This rebellion has occurred. Uh, this, this horrific scene of, of uh, called the second death, the great white throne judgment in which everyone's name who was not found written in the book of life was thrown into what in, in Greek is Gehenna, the lake of fire. And we see the very next thing that he describes, okay? So I think the vision that he's seeing is, is like either a, a series of placards coming his way, like here's this scene that I want you to see, or maybe it's like waves coming, but it, I think it adds to the chronological sequencing of what's going on. And then he says, and, th- and then I saw a new heaven and new earth, now look at the description. Be, be, let's be good observers of the text here. Uh, for, the first, uh, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. He gives us some clues there of what's going on. In this new act of creation, I take it. Uh, it's a complete do-over. It's a total uh, away with the old and in with the new. 
Um, and so he talks about this first heaven and first earth. That's the heaven and earth that we're familiar with. Primarily the atmosphere that we would see, the sky, and the physical planet. And he describes them as having passed away. Literally just the, the normal word for, for done away with. Not, it's not a fancy Greek word. It doesn't really help us. Just they're no longer. They're, they're, they've gone. Well, wh- where did they go? I think the answer, and I want you to, I'm going to put it on the overhead or you can flip back to Second Peter 3, 3 through 13. Because here's why it's important to be men and women of the whole book. Peter's going to give us a little piece of the puzzle. He's going to tell us in a passage in which he's trying to get his readers to live holy, to live correctly, he's going to drop in a little prophetic warning that, hey, this is coming, so you better get right with God. And he describes in very great detail, I believe, the destruction of the first heaven and the first earth in a fiery flame out, okay? Sin is always judged biblically through fire. Fire is a great cleanser throughout the word of God, and fire will be the major agent that we'll see in, in 2 Peter 3, 3 through 13. So I've got it here, and I'll just, I'll just kind of read it out loud and, and, and emphasize what I think is important anyway. Know this first. And by the way, I just love this passage for a number of reasons because one of the things that Peter does is he argues against what's called the doctrine of uniformitarianism, sorry, that, that all things are, have always been the same, okay? Now, this is, this is important in philosophy, in logic, in science, all sorts of things. We make decisions today based on that there's been a uniformity, that it's always been this way so I can go back or I can go forward based on those sequences, based on the consistency of those patterns. And he's saying, you can't do that in all cases. And, he's, and he, in fact, he warns against do, uh, doing this. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? I mean, you guys go to these prophecy conferences, you listen to that buck guy all summer, and you learn all about this stuff, you get all fired up, you want the rapture to happen tomorrow, and then he doesn't show up, and everybody just goes, oh, okay. And eventually, people start to mock us for having such a belief, and that will characterize, apparently, uh, the, the, all throughout the church age, but certainly the latter portion of the church age. For ever since the fathers, typically referring to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but guys long time ago, Genesis kind of guys, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. That's what they say. He's not coming. He's not come before. It's always been this way. So if he's not come before and it's always been that way, he ain't coming in the future because all things continue as they always have been. That's the argument of the mocker, okay? And then for when they maintain this, that is the mockers, it escapes, I love this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. He's, going, he's taking you back to Genesis 1-2 in which the first description of the planet is completely shrouded in water. Rivers and mountains and and, and glaciers or whatever appear after verse 2. He says, God creates the heaven and earth, and he says, now the earth was formless and void, and the surface of the water covered the entire planet. The Spirit of God was hoovering over this whole planet, almost like a mother bird is that word, hoovering, about to give it birth. And so he's saying, wait a minute. Don't you know that the planet has not always looked the way it looked now? It used to be a completely water planet, interestingly. 
Genesis 1-2, total water. Revelation 21-1, total land. No longer any sea. You're going to see a a ton of stuff like that, okay? As this sort of alpha and omega, the, the yin and yang, if you'll allow, of the Bible unfolds. It's really quite beautiful. It escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the word, the world at that time was destroyed, the flood, being flooded with water. Oh, so it's, the earth has not always been the same. So it was first shrouded by water. Then it had the uh, formations that we're used to, mountains and plains and, and, and rivers and lakes. And then there was a great flood that Genesis 6 through 9 says completely covered the earth again. So everything has not always been the same. He's arguing. So if you make that position, let me give you two now examples where that's not holding up, that the earth has not always been the same as you purport it to be. But by his word, the present heavens are being, and earth are being reserved for fire, not water, but fire. So he's making the case. It's a mistake to think that everything's always been the same and will continue to always be the same. He's given us two examples where that's not true. The mold has been broken at creation, Genesis 1-2, the flood, Genesis 6 through 9. And now he's saying there's another one coming. This present earth And the present atmosphere, or heaven, is being reserved for fire, notice. Kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But don't let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years. This is where that famous verse comes from. And a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all come to repentance. So he, in light of the fact that one day is coming, what we're going to see right before Revelation 21 starts, he's saying that's really the patience of God. That's how he's describing it in sort of in prophetic lingo. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, we saw that before, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. That's a pretty lavish description of a fire, okay? Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? There it is again, using a sure prophetic event sometime in the future to arrest our attention now and to get us to shape up and how we live with God now. Because he is a God who can judge this harshly uh, and will not us per se, but don't go against what the author of Hebrews would say, the all-consuming fire that is God, okay? What kind of people should we be in all holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt away with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for a, look for it, a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And that is the description in Revelation 21 and 22. It's really quite beautiful. And you're going to see verses that you've sort of looked at before and go, what is that talking about? What does that mean? Really come to bear, I think, if you see the full uh, extension of those verses, the full fulfillment of those verses in Revelation 21 and 22. So we're going to see again now, and let, let's go back to our text in Revelation 21 too. He just kind of makes this statement. I see a new heaven, a new earth, first heaven pass away, no longer any sea. And he sees a city coming down out of heaven in verse 2. I saw a whole, the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready 
as a bride adorned for her husband. Great little moments there for Bible study methods, observations, you know. Sees the city, the holy city. It's called New Jerusalem. Coming down out of, from heaven, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. So just go to wedding M.O. And, and uh, the bride has, having had three daughters, have, I have three daughters, I can promise you they think about their weddings a lot, even when they don't even have boyfriends. They just think about the day they're going to get married. And it's a big deal. And you get ready for it. Interestingly, the Bible uses that same imagery for us getting ready. It's kind of weird for guys, but we're actually a part of the bride of Christ. So we're getting ready for our wedding to Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, that he has betrothed us or engaged us, maybe in our language, to one husband, Jesus Christ. And we are to be getting ready for that wedding. So think about those, and I know the ladies will get this better, but think about the effort and the plans and the details for that wedding day, but that, that reveal, you know, where the door opens and you come out and it's a big deal. And, and that, that's the same kind of an, of an image that he's talking about here. He sees this city that's like a bride coming down out of heaven. Now, it, there's a big debate, you know, and I don't really know the answer. I, I have some thoughts on it, but th- does th- it never describes the city as hitting the planet, as actually touching down. It's, it's described twice here and then the more detailed description here in a moment as just descending, just coming down out of heaven. Okay? We're going to talk about some math and the size of it and all that in a moment. I think if, if it's a real thing, it can't actually touch the earth because the curvature of the earth won't, wouldn't allow for it. it, it it's going to be a very huge cube, I think, um, and, and it won't work. But who cares? You know, uh, it, 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 Does it settle on the surface of the earth? Does it sus- suspend over the surface of the earth? I'll be here late for all the grad students who want to come and talk about that. Well, uh, you'll come in anyway, Matt, I know, so we'll, we'll do it. Notice here, yeah, there's a strong contrast here to the Jerusalem scene, last scene. Last time we talked about Jerusalem, it was seen as Sodom. It was seen as Egypt. That was one of the aha moments I had when I was here with Jason's night, and, and I, I was going through that just in my head, that I had really failed to see that Jerusalem had really turned into a debauched city based on the Antichrist and his setup and the whole worldly system. Jerusalem had turned against the Lord. That's why he plops the two witnesses down in Jerusalem, makes that the battleground in which they duke it out for God's righteousness again. But now, that's your last time you saw Jerusalem, right? Now you see her, this term, new Jerusalem. She's coming down adorned. She's called holy and new. It's a beautiful picture, and she has been made ready as a bride. And here's where the Bible can really be interesting. Who wrote the book of Revelation? Who's the author of Revelation? Who wrote the Gospel of John? I admit the second question was easier than the first, but the author of both Revelation, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the Gospel of John is John. In this case, it's on the Isle of Patmos, been exiled, and that's where he sees this vision. But he's going to use terms in, in especially the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation that so beautifully tie this thing together. Here's an example of one. The city is made ready, okay? What, did, what had Jesus said in John 14 that he was going to go do? I was going to go away and prepare a place for you. Same Greek word. So what I think is happening, he is, he, at the time that he gives that prophecy in John 14, it's still 
holds for us today. He is preparing. I go and prepare, present tense, a place for you. But now it's ready. The city is complete. The mansions, if you will, the compartments, the apartments have all been allocated, have all been, leases have all been signed, deposits collected, all those sorts of things, and now it's ready. So present tense being made ready, and now it's made ready. It's, it's complete. The made ready and prepare, same word that you see in John 14, 3, where he said, I go and prepare a place for you. I can't prove this. Um, I'd take four or five hard licks in the arm for this. I wouldn't die for this. But I think, based on the paucity of information that we have, I think it's a reasonable conclusion to make that what Jesus is preparing now is the new Jerusalem, the eternal abode of the redeemed, the, the, and certainly the abode of of the bride of Christ, okay? It's not, if, if you argued against me, I'd probably yield after 15 or 20 minutes, but I think it's of note um, based on this and some other little hints that that's what's going on, that the new Jerusalem is being prepared now and will be the home of the redeemed after the rapture, uh, and then will eventually be fulfilled and return and what we, what we become the heavenly city or the eternal state. Now, the idea of a heavenly city is not new. It's not only seen in Revelation 21 and 22. In fact, let me, let me don't go ahead. What Revelation 21 and 22 provides are, are those little verses I was talking about where you see this verse and you go, what's he talking about? When you get to Revelation 21 and 22, you go, oh, I see what he's talking about. We, you know, I'll see uh, th- this one in, in, in Hebrews, you know, Abram talking about uh, a city whose architect and builder was God. And I just go... He's probably talking about Jerusalem, maybe. It's probably just figurative. He's probably just talking about, you know, this final... It's just a term for heaven, it may be. But notice what heaven is taking on some shape and form now. It's, It's a city... And it's the fulfillment of all the desires of these, of these individuals who were looking for that city. Hebrews eleven sixteen. God is not ashamed to be called their God, and he has prepared a city for them. Interestingly, Hebrews 12, 22, you have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So it's, it's not a new reveal in Revelation 21 and 22. It's the fulfillment of these allusions to this city that others have seen. Paul in Galatians talks about the Jerusalem that is above. In his day, Jerusalem was, was on, is on the earth. It wasn't above the earth, but he's talking about, he's using an allegory, I'll grant you there, but it's referring to that it was above. And earlier in the book of Revelation, the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven. That's our future. That's really what heaven is. And sometimes it's, it's, it's hard to sort of bust the bubble, but we don't actually go to heaven. Heaven comes to us. Heaven is an earthly component. And I think there's a reason for that. And ultimately the reason is, is that, is that we are of the earth, that we are earthly creatures and we are eternally of the Adama, thus Adam in Genesis. And God meets us where we are and comes to abide in a sphere, in an arena in which we were outfitted. And you'll see that throughout the Word of God. God always accommodating to his creatures. God becomes a man in the person of Christ. It would be equivalent to us having created ants and want to go talk to ants who had rebelled against us. And we could stand over their, their little mound and yell and scream and throw ice cubes at them and stuff. Or we could become an ant and walk around in tunnels and pull little grass stalks and talk with 
thing sticking out of our head. And we might go, I don't want to do that. That's kind of, I'm a free agent, man. I can move around. You know, I don't want to be an ant. How much more, the argument would be, has God done that? The eternal creator of Genesis 1, recreating again here in Genesis 21, accommodating to us. Heaven comes to earth, and we see this beautiful connection in the scriptures. It is the personal dwelling of God among men. Look at verse 3 as we continue in Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. I love this verse. It's one that has great connection to, to John um, chapter 1, by the way, elsewhere. Um, but, but notice it, it, it's introduced by a loud voice. Um, 19 times in the book of Revelation, big deals are introduced by a loud voice. And, and I actually threw this in here thinking that my wife is going to be here tonight because I'm constantly, guys, I don't know if you're like this, I'm constantly getting to, shh, don't talk so loud, honey. I'll talk to my kid upstairs. Hey, Olivia, come down. Honey, shh, don't talk so loud. I'm showing her that 19 times in the book of Revelation, people talk with a loud voice, okay? It's okay. Sometimes you got to speak up, right? I have biblical permission, honey, to talk with a loud voice. Probably not, but I'm going to go for that. I love this imagery, though, the the house of God. That's what we saw uh, the the author of Hebrews say. He called it the tabernacle of God. Here in in, in Rev 21 again, uh, the tabernacle of God, Revelation 13, sticks with that. Uh, Emmanuel, God with us, is that image from Isaiah 7. Uh, John 1.14, the word became flesh. And literally in Greek, tabernacled among us, pitched his tent, literally. Uh, It's an amazing image throughout the word of God that God descends to us so that we can be reconciled to him and thus ask us to do the same thing. That's the story of the word of God. And And we're seeing it here in a vision and in these pictures, but very beautifully. And notice as he says, In verse 4, and he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no longer any death. There shall be no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. All the things, all those components of that verse, you know, describe a lot of what life is. And, And that final sting of death and that effect of sin, maybe not personal sin, but that there's something wrong with this first heaven and first earth. It needs to be done away with. It needs to be rid of the contaminant. Uh, I love the, the detail with which John writes. Every tear. He just could have said tears are wiped away. Every tear makes it more personal and more all-encompassing. Uh, death, mourning, crying, pain uh, are dealt with. Uh, very powerful uh, image of describing the conditions of the new Jerusalem. Now let's look at verses 5 through 7 and, and take a look at, at, at the new things that those in this city uh, will experience. And he who sits on the throne, verse 5 said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give to the one who thirsts from the springs of water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So you see what he's doing? He's talking about the certainty of prophecy and his sovereign control over it. It's done. It's taken care of. It is so certain in the future, he speaks of it. 
in the present tense. You may, you may, uh, I may call you up and say, uh, hey, Chip, we got elder meeting in the morning. Will you bring that chart that we were working on? And he might text back or type back and say, consider it done. It's there. And he's, it's so certain that it, all, it, it hasn't happened yet, it certainly will. He's speaking of the, prof, of the future, that certainly. But then notice what he does. He speaks to those that are reading his book, that are still alive, that are either believers who need to press on or unbelievers who have not yet come to Christ, and he's drawing them to himself. I love the image of come and, and drink the water that, that costs nothing. Uh, God is speaking here. He says, I'm making all things new. He says, John, write this down. So uh, in the vision, God himself on the throne speaks to John. And it is done, most likely this futuristic aspect that prophecy will be completely wrapped up in me. Uh, This new creation called the heavens and earth, the new heaven and new earth, is complete. It is certain. It is going to happen. And for those of you that are alive now and would like to be a part of that in the future, come to me. And I will be your God and you will be my son. And you can drink of the water that I give, no charge. One of the best pictures of grace in the whole scripture, the best pictures of the absolute no strings attached aspect of the gospel that you'll see. We pound that out often in the, in the epistles with Paul and, and Peter, but here's John in the very end of the Bible making the same statement. Uh, life in him now is available for the reader. Um, unfortunately, there will be those excluded. And in, in one of the most powerful descriptions of the reality of a delineation between the redeemed and the unredeemed, between the believer and the unbeliever, between heaven and hell, is verse 8, which is also written to the contemporary audience to call them out of such lifestyles. There's a strong contrast to what we just saw uh, describing the beauty of the redeemed living in heaven in verses 5 through 7, now in verse 8. Notice the contrasting word, but for the cowardly and probably unfaithful and abominable murderers, immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Every once in a while, the Bible describes unbelievers by their actions. You see it in 1 Corinthians, you see it in Galatians. It's not an unusual thing. They don't go to the lake of fire because they're a liar, because they're immoral, they go to the lake of fire because they believe not in the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? That's the, the line of demarcation. Faith in Christ, yay or nay. But sometimes the Bible will talk about unri- the unrighteous and how they behave unrighteously. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. He actually exhorts the Corinthians who have come out of a, of a background in which he describes. And then he says, he describes all these bad things, very similar to this. He says, and, and that's who you were. But now you've been washed. Now you've been sanctified. Don't ever go back there. Not in the sense of becoming an unbeliever and losing salvation, but why would you want to act that way now that you have ability not to? And the, the Scripture used that, the, that type of exhortation all the time. And the strong contrast, the believers no longer in the presence of sin, we just saw, and unbelievers here described by their actions, which we also saw in Revelation 20, they're going to be judged for their lack of faith, certainly, but also according to their deeds, maybe signifying some degree of demarcation within the eternal state as far as the lake of fire. I'm not certain. But it's quite clear that they're permanently excluded and sealed in their state of sin. Jesus had warned in John 8, 21 and 8, 24, that unless you believe, you will die in your sins. Okay? 
and you will be sealed in your sins. And what we're going to see later is that you will always act that way. That's who you will be because that's who you wanted to be. It's, it's, it's called talionic or fitting or ironic justice. It's rough. But the, the, the book of Revelation, with only two chapters to go, man, it's, it's shooting all chambers right now. It's trying to get all attention to the certain reality of an eternal state exists for every person. In, in, chapters, in chapter 21, 9 through 21, we'll, we'll spend most of our time in the overhead now. It's just, it, it goes now, it's sort of like, um, he says, I'd like to introduce you. Um, to a person. Uh, we do this all the time. I want you to, I want you to uh, meet Mary. Mary's a wonderful friend of mine. Um, and then you guys marry and you shake hands. And then uh, maybe I'm just talking with you and said, let me tell you some things about Mary. Mary has been a real good friend with my wife. And we, we grew up neighbors together. She lost her husband several years ago. She's, this is wonderful. And I go into this great detail about her. What we just saw was the introduction of us to the new city. John just introduced us to the new Jerusalem. Now we've kind of shook hands. We go, okay, I got the grid. There's something coming out of heaven. That's where the redeemed live. Now he sort of draws us over here and says, let me tell you some stuff about this new city. Let me tell you what it's going to be like in, in a fuller detail. And so after this brief introduction of the glories of e- e- eternity, John now gives more details about the glorious city. Uh, the home of the redeemed. And he gives a general description in 9 through 11. Let's let's take a look at that for just a moment. And then he's going to go quite detailed. And as for the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came. So the same angel you saw in Rev, what, probably 18 or 19. And one of the, that, that angel came and spoke to me saying, come here and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Okay. We saw earlier that the city was made ready as a bride, but now it, it's, it's sort of like the camera lens was a little unclear, and now the, the operator is, is, is making it a little bit more clear. It's not as fuzzy, and we're starting to see what's going on. Uh, and he says, he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was a very costly stone coming down from heaven. Again, every time it's described, it's coming down, coming down coming down. There's going to be access to it. Not certain if it hits the earth or not, but there's clear access to it as the chapter unfolds. The general description uh, reveals, first of all, the angel says, let me show you, John, the bride, the wife of the lamb. And then he says, this city, the wife of the lamb is Jerusalem. And so he's going to equate the fact that the bride, which is the church, is the new Jerusalem in this symbolism. It is what is going to be the abode of the church. I think that takes us back to John 14. I go and prepare a place for you. He spoke that uh, to those that would become his followers, that would become Christians. And as a result, he's finished his work, and now he's bringing back the apartment complex. It's going to be quite large, actually, and going to present it very dramatically in this vision that he's going to give John. So he's going to equate... In symbolic language, the new Jerusalem to the bride of Christ, the home of the redeemed. Now, uh, although the new Jerusalem will be the home of all the redeemed, the focus in the book of Revelation is upon Jesus. He is the subject and the hero of the book of Revelation. And thus, his bride, his church, gets special attention. 
it, it's again back to that camera deal. If I, if I had a wide shot of all y'all and then just wanted to focus over here, it doesn't mean that you don't exist. I'm just focusing here for a moment. And I think that's what he's doing here. He's focusing upon uh, the hero of the book. Remember, early in the book, the very first words of the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he is what is being revealed, okay? Uh, He is the subject of the revelation, and it's singular. It's not the revelations. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the reason it's the the, the Greek word apocalypsis, we, we get our word apocalyptic from, means unveiling or finale. And so we're seeing, we kind of had these pictures of Christ, Genesis 3, the seed of the woman, and all the images, the the shadows and forms throughout the sacrifices of the Old Testament, the the, the long-awaited Messiah, uh, the the behold the Lamb of God, John says as the New Testament unfolds, uh, who takes away the sin of the world. And Paul and Peter give him great distinction and form, Colossians 1 especially. But now, drum roll please, here's the man, the full revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what the book of Revelation about is about. And now one of his most precious possessions is us descending down out of heaven now, his bride who lives in this city with him. And it's really quite a, a beautiful image. Um, the, 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 the city is described as having the glory of God. And that's kind of one of those Christian words that we see and, and never really stop and think about what does that mean? The word glory, by the way, comes first in the Old Testament to, to be fat, literally to be heavy. But like in our language, things can have literal meaning, but also figurative meaning. So I could say, uh, you, you might say something that I had to really think about, and I might go, that, that's kind of heavy. Let me think about that. And, and that's that same image of something that is important, something that is profound, something that requires attention. So the city reflects his importance, his largeness, if you will. He's a big deal, and we're going to see, in human terms, a big-sized city uh, coming down. It's costly stones, as you might expect. It's lavishly ordained. Uh, It's crystal clear, and it's jasper, but its point is obvious, that it is intended to emit this dazzling display that something big is happening here. And if if this is the bride of Christ and how beautiful she is, ordained, adorned rather, and descending now, what, what's the groom like? And what will they be like together? That's sort of the, the image that we're supposed to uh, get from this deal. Uh, just some descriptions here, because I love kind of building stuff. And uh, he, talks about, he talks about the walls, but he talks about the gates. And you, you can kind of go, okay, neat. But watch what happens. What, watch what he does as he converts the symbols. Remember I, I said earlier, uh, 10 of the symbols are converted, 10 are not. He's going to convert one now. He's going to say, the, 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 well, let's just read it because I, I think it's more powerful as we read it. In verses uh, 12 through 14 now, notice, and it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the 12 gates, 12 angels, and the names were written on them, which are those of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. Okay, so the 12 gates represent the 12 tribes of Israel, okay? And there were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. That's verse 13. Now verse 14. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, which are not gates. They're cornerstones at each laid for foundation purposes, 12 foundation stones. And upon them were the 12 names 
of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And you see the Bible coming together so beautifully because the two main characters in the story, the unfolding story of the Bible, were Israel and the church. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles of the Lamb. And they maintain their distinction. They're both there, but they're together. And so we see, although they were distinct in the presentation, at the end of the book, they've maintained their distinction, but there's also unity. And I really think it's quite beautiful. The 12 gates, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 stones are the apostles. And the point, obviously, both Israel and the church will be part of the city, yet seen as distinct groups within the people of God. And it really beautifully captures the end of the Bible and and how those characters serve their roles, if you will, like an actor in a play, but at the end, they're holding hands and taking a bow. It's it's really amazing how God uh, enfolds all this together at the end. For you engineers, which I'm certain there's many in here, and I'm probably about to get in trouble because I'm actually going to use Pythagorean's theory in just a moment, which will probably throw you off. But they, John goes around measuring everything. Everything back then was a, uh, they, they would use this 10 foot linear deal. So we might get a 25 foot, um, you know, tape or three foot for a yard or whatever. And he's going to start measuring stuff. I think he's going to see a cube. The pictures I'm going to describe are a cube. It could be a pyramid. Work with me here. Okay, let's just imagine it's a cube. It's a vision. This is the bride of Christ, the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven. It's, this is a direct quote. It's length and width and height are equal. And there's some textual problems here, and some versions will say it's 1,400 miles. Others will say it's 1,500 miles. Let's just go with 1,500 miles. Um, that the length, the width, and the height. Okay, so that's how you would describe a square that has dimension, so a cubed square. So just think of that. Um, 15 times 1,500, if you want to just think in square miles, is 2,250,000 square miles. That's 8.3 times the size of the state of Texas. So if it's just one dimension, the length and the, and the height, that's eight Texases coming down out of heaven. So you're sitting here in College Station, and you look up, and eight things the size of the state of Texas is slowly coming down out of heaven. But you're just describing one dimension of it. It's got height as well. So we've got to cube that, which you multiply by six but to do that. Now it's 13,500,000 square cubic miles. Height, width, and length. And the hypotenuse is going to be 21,000 or 2,100, 21 miles. That's where I used Pythagorean's theory. Okay? It's the same distance as from Key Largo to the top of Maine. So if you're an East Coaster, just think of that. Bottom of the key, you know, starting with the keys all the way up to the top of Maine. That's how long it is. If, that, that, if it was the hypotenuse showing up first, the overall size would approximate the moon. So imagine if the moon kept getting a little closer every day. Okay? And, there, and then there's a wall, which is literally microscopic in compared to the dimensions. And I think there's a reason for that because the wall of cities was to keep out bad guys. What's not in the New Jerusalem? No bad guys. I think it's more symbolic of, yeah, this is a city, but it's a little wall. It's, you know, you can like just jump over it kind of a thing. It's only 72 yards, 216 feet high, which is compared to 1,500 miles is a pretty small wall. There's a rare picture of it just uh, captured from, <laughs> you go to seminary, the, Moses passes these things down, and that's why you have to pay so much in tuition. Um, 
Here's a little closer look. Got the stones there and all that jazz. I'm almost embarrassed to show you this one. I I found this one later earlier today. But this is, the earth's about 8,000 miles in, in, in diameter. So it gives you a sense. It's about roughly a quarter of the diameter of the earth. Um, that would be suspended. The reason I don't think it hits the earth is this little, situ- this little doodad right here. It's too big. Now, maybe John was a flat earther. I don't know. You know, maybe, maybe he probably was. I mean, why wouldn't he not be, you know? But, you know, so a lot of people debunk the Bible and say, oh, it, it, couldn't, it wouldn't fit. It would, you know, it would like teeter and would it have to, you know, put out anchors and stuff. Like, come on, man. I, I don't know, but... Let, let's say it's suspended above the air, earth such that there's access to it because there's clear access to it later as the chapter unfolds. It's a pretty big deal that John sees. There's the moon and, and an attempted relative size to the earth, roughly a quarter of it, um, another shot of it if it was suspended. It's going to take over a large portion. Um, so if, if from Florida to Maine and then you've got to go east, from east to west that same distance and then up, that's a big thing that John sees. And certainly he's overwhelmed with it. But it also shows the enormity. I read a stat that said if there were, of course we don't know when the Lord's coming back, but let's assume that he comes back in, in a, and we'll do it so the math is easy, uh, where there, there was a, that in which there would have been 100 billion people ever alive. Okay, that would be the course of humanity, 100 billion people. And, and, you know, the Bible says, few there be that find it, narrow is the way, if, if that's what he's talking about. So let's, let's think a third, it may be more, but, but this, the math I learned was a third. If a third are redeemed out of the 100 billion, maybe it was 1,000 billion. Let's go with 100 billion. No, it's going to be 1,000 billion. Everybody would have 75 acres. There you go. Okay, it used to be 40 acres and a mule. Now you get 75 acres and no mule. But it's a huge earth and this cube descending because all the land is for grabs on the earth, if you will, because there is no longer any sea. So everything that is at the bottom of the Pacific now could be your golf course, if you will. Okay. I don't know, but it's, he's overwhelmed with it. He's overwhelmed with the materials. He thinks of everything that he could think of in his day to describe in this vision that, that, that he saw. The walls are made out of Jasper. The city is pure gold. It's so pure, it's like clear. You know, we kind of think of Fort Knox and heavy little bullion things, but those aren't clear. You know, just absolute pure gold, so pure. You got the seven foundation stones that we saw, but they're also adorned with stones. You got the gates we just saw also ordained, or, or, adorned with uh, pearls. The streets are pure gold, like transparent glass, it says. We would look for a temple, but guess what? The Bible says there is no temple. Let's go to Revelation 21, 22. After that lavish description there with a whole bunch of powerful and precious stones, he says in verse 22, this, if you've been following the Bible, you don't expect this verse. And I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. But throughout the word of God, the temple, the tabernacle, was where you met God. So you went there to have an interaction with his priest or his, the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament. But all those things are done away with now. God is here and can be met. He himself is the access to himself, if you will. There is no need 
for a temple. There is no need for a priest. That's been done away with. But that physical place in which the temple of God, even our own bodies being a depository of the temple of God, is no more. He's there and everywhere. There is no more temple. And I love the way he phrases it. Only five times does he, does he use this word um, in the book of Revelation where he calls it the Lord God. Now, you see that a ton in the Old Testament, especially Genesis. It'd be Yahweh Elohim. Um, but, but here he describes it with that name, the Almighty. And, of course, Jesus, almost throughout the bulk of the book of Revelation, is called the Lamb. Who first called him the Lamb? John. John 1, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The ultimate picture of the sacrifice for sin that allows access to God and God now with us with such openness, such access, that there's no reason for a place to go see him and meet him. He's here and he's everywhere. And there is no veil of any kind anymore. The redeemed will be living in the midst of the unveiled glory of God. That is, in essence, heaven. God with us, unveiled, with no sin barrier whatsoever between us and him. The special delights of the city, he describes in verses 23 and 24 another aspect that was very important to John throughout his writing. Notice verse 23, And the city had no need for the sun or of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of the Lord had illumined it, and its lamp is the lamp. And the nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. Now, he doesn't say that there's no longer any sun or moon. It just says we don't need you. We don't need what we first saw in Genesis 1 to give light day and night. Its illumination is so dwarfed by the powerful illumination, the wattage, if you will, of the Lord. There is no need for the sun or the moon. I don't know if they go away. They're not part of the new heaven and earth, like there was no longer any sea. That's not how he describes it. I think he does it more neatly. He says, what we think is bright, and think about today. Would you go outside today like at 3.15, just from your car, office to your car, from your you know, kitchen, and just go, what? It's so hot, I couldn't believe it. And so we, we're pretty impressed with the sun. It's a pretty bright thing. It sort of gets our attention Full moon, pretty, you can see a lot. Imagine a brightness that would dwarf the illumination of the sun. That's what he's saying here. That's how bright the presence of the Lord. There's no need for the light of the sun or the moon. God's glory illuminates it. And John was in love with the image of light. And the whole message of 1 John revolves around the fifth verse of the first chapter. And this is the message that we heard from God and declare to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And that's the whole metaphor throughout the book of 1 John. If you find yourself away from the light, in the darkness, run to the light. There's safety. There's illumination. There's goodness in the light. If you're over here in the darkness, bad. Move to the light. And that works for believers or unbelievers. Move to the light. John is entranced with that image of God as light. And here... Although he first says it in the Gospel of John, here it comes to full fruition that what kind of light are we talking about? A light that is so powerful that the sun would be minuscule compared to it. The nations are mentioned here. Did you notice in verse 24? I found that interesting. In verse 24, and the nations shall walk by its light and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. 
So we have the concept of the nations elsewhere used in Revelation and elsewhere throughout the New and Old Testament really as for Gentiles. I don't know if that symbol holds true here. I think it does. Uh, I think the, the whole planet and the cube will be populated and, and allowed to be accessed. And so here, this could be Gentiles prior to the church. It could be Gentiles after uh, the church. Uh, they're seen here as redeemed and having access to the city. The kings could be a reference to the former pagan rulers who are now uh, redeemed and in the city. That's who, how we saw them last in the book of, of Revelation. The kings would get together and plot against the lamb and try to overcome him. And now we're seeing them perhaps as redeemed and, and, and falling after him. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, that sort of imagery. It could be a reference to that they're kingly or king-like, king-like uh, in, their, uh, in their reward stature. They could be believers who have been endowed with multiple rewards, and that's their glory, their importance. And like what we see with the 24 elders or anyone who is endowed with rewards in the book of Revelation, they cast them down before the Lord and, and they give glory to the Lord. They don't want any, any of the illumination to come upon them. They want to give all credit to God for what they've done. And it's a beautiful picture. I'm not certain what's going on here, but, but that's how that word is used elsewhere. The gates are always open. They're never closed. There's always light. So all the things that have so controlled light, life, you know, even from the book of Genesis, there was evening, morning, one day. No mas. Okay? Always light. Always light. The nations move in out of the city. Maybe they have access on the earth and to the cube if it's suspended. I don't know. Uh, but it seems come all you have drunk of the water without cost. This is your land and I will be your God and you will be my sons and daughters. It seems uh, to be a magnificent scene of multitudes uh, living and worshiping with God. And the city, of course, as we've seen, is reserved for those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The physical provisions, it's a beautiful picture. I've got the handout that you, I gave you. you can take that out because it's the longer version of what I'm going to show you here. But of, of my two favorite books in the Bible, Genesis and Revelation, they come together so beautifully here. It's just overwhelming to me, quite frankly. Um, it's beyond human ability, in my opinion. It's It's perfect. Uh, the story that was first unfolded in Genesis is so beautifully wrapped up uh, in Revelation with great detail. Um, I mean, what took one and two pages, two sides of one page to do it. Uh, but there's a return to Genesis. Uh, there were and just a couple of them. You know, there was a river that flowed out of Eden in Genesis 2.10. The, the water now flows out of the throne room of God in, in Genesis 22.1. Uh, there was the tree of life in the midst of the garden. That's what they couldn't eat of after they sinned. And the tree of life now, that same one is seen in the midst of the street in Revelation 22 too. So same characters that we've seen early, way back, have now reached their full fruition. And we get a, a picture. And, and of course, the story of the Bible, as you think of it structurally, is, is, is really kind of overwhelming. You know, Genesis 1 and 2, what we were intended to be like, no presence of sin, Complete harmony between God and mankind, ruined by sin in chapter 3 of Genesis, which affects everything, every chapter, every verse, all the way up to the end of Revelation 20. And then finally, only two more chapters in which gets us back together what we intended to be like. That harmony is restored 
and, and sin is removed. And you see that beautiful coupling, if you will, of the story of the Bible. That's why it's intended to be read in toto as a holistic document. It's a, it tells a story from Genesis beginning to unveiling Apocalypsis, Revelation, to the end. The return to Genesis is, is even more profound. There is no argument from silence, I'll grant you, but no, no mention of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve had the ability to sin. Those in the redeemed city, the eternal city, will not. So as difficult it is for us to imagine life without sin, like imagining life without air, that's the deal. No sin. No ability to sin. Perfect harmony. Perfect redemption. Complete. Uh, the ground was cursed in Genesis 3. It says in Rev 22, verse 3, the curse has now been removed. And that's all I did just here. From, Rev, from Gen 3 all the way to Rev 20, the curse had its day. And it showed up in a variety of different ways. It's been eradicated. It's been removed. And that's really the idea of, of heaven, is, is a perfect harmony between God and man with no ability to sin, uh, in, a, in a, an abode that brings glory to God for what he's done. And notice that we now, in, in the eternal city, have been fully enabled to meet our full purpose which is to restore him. The story of the Bible is the enabling of man, and it, and it does it a little. The, the, the law did its thing, and that was helpful. The Spirit comes and lives uh, in us, yet we still strive and, and struggle with it. The very removal of our foe, the very removal of the ability to sin, enables us fully to serve him, our intended purpose originally. Uh, notice again, and again, this is just a foretaste of what you've got um, and before you, but heavens and earth in Genesis 1 created... We have a new creation scene in Rev 21.1. Sun is created in 116 of Genesis. No need for the sun at the end of the book, of the, meaning the Bible. The night was established in Genesis 1. No night in Rev 21. The seas in chapter 110, as well as the shrouding of the planet in 1.2. No more seas. Curse announced in 3.14 through 17. No more curse. Death enters history in 3.19. No more death. Man driven from the tree in 324, man restored to paradise in 22, 1 through, uh, not 140, sorry about that. Wow, that's a long chapter. Um, <laughs> sorrow and pain begin in 317, no more tears, no more crying, no more pain. It's a beautiful um, alpha and omega, which is what the terms he had just said. There's perfect fellowship within this city. Uh, they shall see his face, uh, an image that you've seen throughout the scripture, not exactly certain what it means here. They are in perfect fellowship in his very presence, but there is some debate as to whose face is going to be seen. Now, our default is, well, Jesus. That, that's, he's the image of the invisible God. Uh, that's probably him. Others will hold that it could be the Father in, in a different sense. I don't know for sure. Um, the nearest antecedent for those that will see the, the face is, is the Lamb or him in, in 21.3. Uh, or 22.3, sorry. But um, it could be the Father based on some allusions to other verses. Matthew 5.8, for example, is the, the blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Could be Christ, certainly. 1 Corinthians 13.12, now we see dimly, but then face to face. Could be Christ, maybe God. Maybe there's a new revealing. Maybe the, the grape is pulled back one more layer, and now God himself if he's able to be seen in another form, I don't know. But a lot of people will hold that it's ratcheted up another level here, this perfection of the fellowship. 
uh, captured in this term, you will see him face to face. Hebrews 12, 14, sanctification without, without which one, no one will see the Lord. Could be Jesus, could be the Father. Um, but th- those are the things that Revelation will, will kind of get you to think about. I, I love this, this image of ownership and belonging captured with this idea of their names, of his name written on their foreheads. It's mentioned several times, by the way. Um, sometimes it's the place where the mark of the beast occurred earlier in the book of Revelation. Uh, here, it's the mark of the Lamb, uh, the special name of God written on the foreheads of the redeemed, uh, signifying uh, that you're mine and that you belong here. It's, not, it's two-sided. It's not just like a brand. It, it tells the branded, if you will, that you have a master. You have one who who owns you and cares for you and loves you. And of course, the strong, strong contrast, the last time we saw people getting marked in the book of Revelation, it was taking the mark of the beast, from which there was no turning back. So it had to be some kind of ritual in which you sealed your fate eternally based on receiving that mark. Uh, but here, the redeemed enjoy the mark of the lamb upon their head. So the perfect city is a place of perfect restoration, perfect administration, Good boss, good workers, perfect subordination, everybody wants to do, yes, sir, uh, perfect transformation, uh, our, uh, we're perfected fully, perfect identification, we know who we are uh, completely, perfect illumination, uh, he himself provides that illumination, we see everything as it was originally intended, and perfect exaltation as we see ourselves exalting his name uh, forever and ever uh, as we reign with him uh, so that's really the last two chapters of the Bible in, in some detail. Um, the epilogue is just a series of promises uh, that are uh, pretty basic and straightforward. I do want to take you to the one that is difficult in, in chapter 22, verses 18 and 19, because it, it, it's, it's, we, we've sort of already seen it where it talks about uh, unbelievers and how they act, as we saw that in, verses, in chapter 21, verse 8. But frankly, these are kind of a couple of those verses I'm going, God, as a teacher, why did you stick these two verses in right here? Because you have to stop and kind of talk about them because they can be very difficult to interpret. Um, But verses 18 and 19 are two of the last three verses of the Bible, and it would be presumptuous of me to just skip them um, because he wants us to be warned. He wants his readers to be warned of the importance of what he's saying. And so, notice what he says in in chapter 22, verses 18 uh, and 19. I'll I'll pick it up in 17. The spirit spirit and the bride say, come. Let let him who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let him who wishes to take of the water without cost. Same image that we've seen before. If you're reading this and you find yourself in the darkness, come to the light. Drink of the water that's free. It is available to you and this will be your destiny. If you're already in the light but sneaking away from it, don't do that. Don't live like them. Live fully in the light, for that pleases the one that has redeemed you, whose city, uh, the author of this city or the architect of this city, as Abram said. But then he talks about, in verse 18, um, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God shall add to them the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. 
Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Got to take a look at verses 18 and 19 just for a second so we can see the intent of the warning, what he's really not saying, although it might appear to be, and the emphasis. Notice in 22, he's got a theme, an emphasis. The words of this prophecy, the words of this prophecy, the words of this prophecy, the words of this prophecy. Six times he talks about the stuff I told John to write down in this book, that's what I want you to heed. Okay? It's important. Also a final recollection and remembrance of the importance of the word of God. What God has said has been written down and that's how we interact with him. That's the way we know him. Through the word of God. His words matter. Okay? The warning, the first warning is going to be about if you add to the words, I'm going to add to you the plagues. And that's sort of an easy one. It's called, it's a, it's a form of, of justice that because you added, I'm going to add to you. It's sort of a way to remember. It's called talionic or fitting, corresponding type of justice. If I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written. And then secondly, if anyone takes away, so you got the adders and then you got the subtractors. If anyone takes away, I'm taking away your part in the, in the, the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. So how do we unlock that? The first one's a little easier to unlock than the second one. The, the warning, so the fancy word is talionic. It means fitting or corresponding um, Adam A-D-A-M. He sinned in an eating-related manner in Genesis 3. He ate that which he was not to eat of. And so his discipline was eating of the ground that has now been riddled with thorns and thistles. It'll be hard for you to eat because you ate. Sort of that constant reminder that I participated in that sin and it's visiting back upon me. See how it works? So Jesus himself is the speaker here in verse 16, 18, and 20. And, the, and, and this is easier to unlock. There are solemn warnings throughout the Bible. Don't mess with God's word. None more clear than in Deuteronomy 4 and, and Deuteronomy chapter 12. And I take it, John, very familiar with the Mosaic Code, and certainly the book of Deuteronomy, is simply bringing that over. God's word is to be taken as to what it says. You don't add to it. You don't take away from it. You deal with it. Okay? So he, now he's dealing with the adders. Saying, you add to it, I'm going to add to you the plagues that we've talked about all the way from Revelation 6 all the way through Revelation 19. Those are the kind of things that could come your way. The next one's a little bit more difficult. Um, again, these warnings are to, to uh, don't, don't alter, uh, willfully alter what God's will is. Don't intentionally try to change it as, as revealed in the, the book of Revelation. God will visit the offender with the plagues. It could be a loss of salvation, some would hold. But that doesn't square with what Jesus and John have said elsewhere. He made very powerful statements. No one is able to snatch them out of my hands. Uh, the, the, this fate of the believer is eternal and secure. could be hyperbolic language to uh, uh, emphasize the seriousness of the sin. I kind of go there. Maybe uh, the last one might be a little bit more on point. The perverters or unbelievers of the teaching of Revelation will experience judgment similar to those found. In other words, if you're, if you're an unbeliever and you're reading this and you go, I just don't buy it. It's his final saying, statement saying, that, that's a terrible decision you've just made. It, it will come upon you. That decision will come back upon you. That could be indeed what he wants to leave them with. So you had the adders, now you had the takeawayers, okay? 
Uh, God will take away the unbeliever or take away rewards from a believer. It's a common way to interpret. Could be some would hold a loss of salvation. Armenians would hold that here. Again, inconsistent with Jesus and John elsewhere. Seems unusual that he would change his thought on the eternal security of the believer at the end when he's made chapter after chapter after chapter of statements previously. Could be the hyperbolic language. Could be the unbelieving perverters of the teaching of Revelation um, will not experience the new city. It's warning. You're not going to go to heaven if you don't follow after the verses that just preceded this. Come and drink of this water that is free. Come and do it now. And, and there's an urgency at the end of the book of Revelation that, that is noteworthy. Um, and finally, he ends with a benediction. Uh, Come quickly, Lord, and the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Uh, I love that, uh, how he ends uh, the last two verses. Um, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come quickly, or literally, amen. It is so. Make it be so. Make that be solid and, and true. Uh, the grace of the Lord be with you all. Of all the, the characteristics of God, of all the doctrines that we might say, uh, that he could have, he had at his disposal. He chose grace. Because that's the image that he's been uh, weaving in the book of Revelation, the water without cost, and every other book of the Bible, that God deals with human beings not based on what they deserve, but rather on what they do not deserve. And he extends to us mercy and kindness uh, as opposed to earned discipline. The, the final discipline is true, and it's a severe warning here, but even in his final words of the Bible, he's doing an altar call. Come, drink of this water. It's no cost. It's not too late to change. You know, the Word of God is, is replete with images of heaven, and I'll end with these. Just, I need about three minutes, and we'll be gone. But, you know, if, if you think about how the, how the Scripture has unfolded, we just saw in Revelation 21 and 22 what the eternal state's going to look like, okay? And we, we've seen how God is in perfect harmony with man there. Everything's finally together. These are pictures from the book of Revelation during the tribulation period. Okay, so that seven-year period and then a thousand-year reign of Christ and then the new heaven and new earth starts. The last look in the Bible prior to the new heaven and new earth that we have of heaven is in the book of Revelation during the tribulation period. And we have those images of people on earth coming to Christ, many of them being killed, and then the next chapter will be them in heaven. So our quest, my question to you is, what are they doing in heaven uh, prior to, admittedly, prior to the new heaven and new earth. But you can't really study the eternal state and not ask the question, what do people do in heaven? What, what's heaven all about? I mean, we've seen it in big imagery. It's about God. It's about his glory. It's about having access and perfect harmony with him. But let's put some meat on those bones. What does that really look like? This is what those in heaven were doing during the tribulation period. The 24 elders, the representatives of the church, I take it, fall down before him and he who sits upon the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. Cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things to because of your will they existed. Worship, glory, honor, based on what God had did. Noted. Notice they, they're citing specific things about him and they're citing that he's a creator. Same thing we see in Revelation 21 and 22 creator of new heavens and new earth. Every time the 24 elders are mentioned, they fall down. They have a fall down ministry, apparently. Every time they show up in the book of Revelation, they hit the deck. 
These are glorified saints in heaven in the presence of the Lord. And they hit the deck in a full acknowledgement that I am not like you at all. And I need to be here and you need to be there. Just like Isaiah. In Isaiah 7 in his vision, woe is me. I I shouldn't be here. I've walked into a formal wedding and I've got, you know, a swimming suit and a tank top on. I I shouldn't be here. One flip-flop loose, you know, I shouldn't be here at all. It's not proper. And that's what you see here with with the people encountering the Lord Jesus, even in heaven. And he who had taken the book, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, worthy are you to take the book and break its seals. So we see worship based on God's character. We see singing. We see activity. We see individual participation, individual ability to worship God and to know things fully about him and to cite those things. That's really what praise is all about. Um, Revelation 11, uh, 24 elders that sit on the throne fell on their faces. Worship God. We give you thanks. So they've contemplated their lives and they recognize who the author of their faith is and the protector of their soul is. And they give him thanks. And so beautiful study, and all this will be online tomorrow, of just what's heaven like. Just go to Rev 21 and 22 and these five or six little heaven snapshots that we have throughout the book of Revelation, and we see uh, the beauty of heaven. And finally, of course, there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. Now, enabled to serve and worship and appreciate and give thanks, we can serve him with a full and open heart, fully in love, fully revealed as to what we are and who he is, and willing and able to subordinate our proper selves to him, ourselves properly to him. For we are his. His name will be written on their foreheads. And so what is heaven like? Well, we don't really go to heaven. It comes to us according to Revelation 21 and 22. It is a place where the person of God is the focus of service and worship. It ain't fishing. It ain't hunting. It ain't Aggie football at perfect seasons. It's God focused around him, his service, the service of him, and the worship of him. Yet we are perfected in our souls and spirit. We we remove the vestiges of Adam's sin finally and be fully who we were intended to be in a perfected body and not affected by the, the tremors and aches and pains and death that characterize our bodies. Uh, And the beauty of that is really what heaven is. Um, It is ordained with glory and holiness and beauty and immortality and light, perfection. All the things our hearts cry for, but sometimes we're kind of afraid to talk about and really wish. It's true. It's true. And so he says, keep that in mind. Solidify that in your souls. This will happen and live according to of that future reality. That's why the Bible is 28% prophetic. It helps us keep on keeping on. It helps us be reminded there's a different day coming that's different than this one. And it's new and perfect and holy and pure. And we will be a part of it because of our relationship with God. How much more would we want to enhance that relationship with him and begin that process and increase that process of service and worship and full adoration 
perfection and love and joy. The perfect city is a perfect relationship with God. It's what we, our hearts cry for. And it's true. And it's captured in the last two chapters of the Bible. And I hope it's been a, a source of encouragement to you as we've gone through the roller coaster of these different uh, components of prophetic history. Uh, and, and finally, properly culminate with the beautiful cherry on top, I guess, a 1,500 square mile cubed cherry coming down out of heaven. That's your future. That's our future. Let me pray for us. Uh, I'll be here as long as anybody wants to chat, but I want to get us out on time, and I've done okay on that. Lord, thanks so much for each one here and for the opportunity that you've given us to think about these things. But Lord, the work just begins here. Help us each have opportunity outside this place to to search the scriptures, to see if these things are so, to become men and women of the whole word of God and see the prophetic outflow of the word of God and the panorama of history that you've allowed us to see. Let us be men and women of the book of Daniel and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah and see the beauty of John's prophecies both in his epistles as well as his gospel and certainly in the Revelation. Lord, help us be men and women who who seek you fully and live for you completely. I pray for each one here, Lord, as we contemplate our future. May it be centered around the person of Jesus Christ. May we have boldness in our conviction that Christ is the one who died for our sins and rose from the dead. That we may be secure in that relationship and have a, a solidity and a certainty that we can tell others of the beauty of that life that awaits them, that by the faith in Christ they might know eternal life with God. Give us that good message, Lord, to give to others. Help us be calmed in times of of difficulty, Lord. When when sickness and and harm come our way, um, let us face it for its reality, but put it in its proper perspective, that it is dwarfed by the light of God that we see in Revelation 21 and 22, that it will overcome all darkness and, and that we might recognize that the sting of death and sin that does bite us every once in a while is of light weight and small consequence, as Paul says, to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. Thanks for giving us a little look into the eternal weight of glory that awaits us, the redeemed. Father, thanks again for this time that we've had. I pray for each one here, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys, for hanging with us. It's all online. Uh, Again, handouts in the... uh, for you if you came late for tonight.